Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm here with my co-hosts, Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. Hey, guys. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. All right. So on this episode, we are going to tackle a paradox. Why doesn't hemolysis cause acute kidney injury as easily as does rhabdomyolysis? It may be not entirely obvious immediately why this is a paradox. So Tony, first, can you explain what made you think about this topic? Absolutely. So whenever I see a patient with rhabdo, one of my biggest concerns is acute kidney injury. And I suspect that you both have the same kind of like response. You look at the CK, you see it's like, you know, 30, 40, 50,000, hopefully not 100,000. And you almost immediately look to the creatinine and say, oh my gosh, do they have an AKI? But I don't do the same thing with hemolysis. I've seen dozens and dozens of cases of hemolysis and I don't have that same reflexive oh, they're hemolyzing, let me quickly check their creatinine and make sure they don't have AKI. So the idea, Tony, is that if heme is the toxic molecule here um, that's sort of you know causing acute kidney injury, both conditions should be as likely to cause renal injury, you know, one to the other. They should both cause it. Is that right? That's exactly right. And, th- and that's why I thought of this as sort of a paradox. You know, we won't go into the mechanism in this episode of like why heme causes renal injury. But the key point is that both hemoglobin and myoglobin have heme. And that, again, that heme moiety is what's causing tubular damage. And this kind of renal injury, acute kidney injury, we call pigment nephropathy. So whatever condition leads to lots and lots of release of these heme-containing molecules, whether that molecule is hemoglobin or myoglobin, should, in theory, cause tubular injury. But that doesn't seem to be the case, at least not in an equal way. So... It does, you know, seem like hemolysis doesn't typically cause AKI, certainly not as commonly as rhabdomyolysis would, but it can potentially happen, right? It definitely can. And I think it's important to establish that up front. Like we don't want listeners to think, oh, my patient is hemolyzing. I heard on the curious clinicians that it doesn't cause uh, AKI um, because it, it absolutely can. And historically, massive hemolysis from ABO mismatch, that was the major cause. But, you know, in 2022, we don't see nearly as much of that kind of hemolytic reaction because blood banks are really good at making sure it doesn't happen. So if you look contemporary studies, the causes of AKI from hemolysis are much more varied. One of the classic ones is actually paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. That's a condition that is more strongly associated with AKI. And more than 90% of patients with PNH have some hemoglobinuria at, during their condition, at, you know, during any of their presentations. And about half of them present with AKI at some point. But PNH is kind of the exception to the rule with hemolysis because most other hemolytic conditions, certainly low-level hemolysis, aren't particularly strong risk factors for AKI. But rhabdo, I feel like any of us could attest that rhabdo seems to be associated as a cause of AKI. I don't think I've ever seen severe rhabdo without an AKI. Yeah, unless you got the fluid started on them like before the crush injury, you know, had some sort of release of all that CK. Yeah, and cohort studies do support that. Depending on what the study you're looking at, the risk of AKI with rhabdo is between 10% and 50%. And as you might imagine, the risk increases with increasing uh, CK levels. And there's actually one study that sort of did a head-to-head comparison using biopsies looking for pigment nephropathy. And it reported rates of pigment nephropathy of 0.06% for hemolysis and 0.8% for rhabdo. 
So if, you know, just comparing those numbers, rhabdo was 13 times as likely to cause pigment nephropathy when compared to hemolysis. So it kind of fits with our clinical experience. Yeah, no, exactly. It sounds like the, the data that you're providing here sort of aligns with our own experience that rhabdomyolysis seems to be a far more uh, significant risk factor for kidney injury than hemolysis does. So what explains this difference? To understand the explanation, I think we should start by kind of making clear that one of the first things that must happen to get pigment nephropathy is the toxic heme moiety has to get access to the renal tubules. And the way it gets access to the renal tubules is by traversing the glomerulus, being you know filtered by the glomerulus and ending up in the collecting ducts, the proximal tubule, all the all those places. So with that understanding, this idea that you have to be filtered by the glomerulus to get access to the tubules and cause damage, it brings us to a couple different explanations. And one actually involves a molecule we often think about when we're assessing for the presence of hemolysis, and that molecule is haptoglobin. You know, what's interesting is that haptoglobin exists, at least in part, and I don't know, maybe exclusively, to protect, to protect us from the toxic effects of free hemoglobin. It basically, what haptoglobin does is it just runs around in the blood looking for free hemoglobin to bind. And what it does, I'm assuming, is by binding it, it neutralizes whatever toxic effect it would have on the body. And so this is why when we hemolyze, the haptoglobin levels are low, because all of it is being used to bind up all this free hemoglobin? That's exactly right. Um, Some of the binding is happening in non-hemolytic states, because there's going to be some free hemoglobin in, in the bloodstream. But in hemolytic states... Basically, haptoglobin is working overtime to bind the the free hemoglobin. And what happens is that these large hemoglobin-haptoglobin complexes, they're just too large to be filtered by the kidney. And because they can't be filtered by the kidney, more specifically the glomerulus, they can't injure the tubules. They just don't have access. Um, And that is probably one of the first sort of areas of defense that we have to prevent AKI from hemolysis is the the use of this haptoglobin molecule. So Tony, that makes sense. But I mean, don't we exhaust this protective mechanism pretty quickly, right? We diagnose hemolysis often based on a very low haptoglobin. That tells us it's happening. So I mean, that suggests there's sort of a limit to this specific binding capacity to prevent AKI, right? That's exactly right. So, you know, one difference between hemoglobin and myoglobin is that hemoglobin binds haptoglobin. But as you just said, Avi, that can't be everything because that system is used up pretty quick. So the second mechanism to explain the difference between hemolysis and rhabdo relates to just how easily filtered hemoglobin is itself, even when it's not bound to haptoglobin. So hemoglobin, as I remember it, is a tetramer. So four globin proteins are two alphas and two betas. So we talked about sieving coefficients recently. Does this mean that with the four big chunks, the four globins, it's a larger molecule? Yeah, I mean everything is relative, and so I, you know I don't know if sixty-eight kilodaltons, which is the size of hemoglobin, I'm not sure if that's like considered by someone who studies proteins to be large. But for the purposes of the glomerulus, I think it's large because as we, if we compare it to, for example, albumin, albumin has a molecular weight of 69 kilodaltons. And so again, hemoglobin is 68, albumin is 69. I'm going to just say they're both modestly sized, <laughs> whatever that means. 
And, you know, like Hannah mentioned, we did discuss sieving coefficient pretty recently, right? I mean, um, back in episode 48, and we talked about how this provides insights into how much a protein will be filtered by the glomerulus. And we we talked about how albumin has a sieving coefficient of less than 0.01, meaning almost no albumin is filtered by the glomerulus. That's exactly right. So, and we know this, right? Unless you have nephrotic syndrome, as we talked about in that episode, you really shouldn't have albumin in the urine, in the tubules. So you using that same principle of sieving coefficient based on size, you know, what might you anticipate is the sieving coefficient for hemoglobin? Uh, if we're doing a size comparison, I would say probably really low. Exactly. And, and you know, it's not quite as low as albumin. Maybe I, I didn't try to figure out why, and it may be related to the charge of albumin being an additional contributor. But either way, the sieving coefficient for hemoglobin is 0.03. And so one way to interpret that is to, to say that about 3% of hemoglobin is filtered by the glomerulus and is able to access the renal tubules. And I would say that's a pretty small amount and apparently is a small enough amount that we don't see a lot of AKI. Okay. So same logic. Presumably, myoglobin would be a smaller molecule, higher sieving coefficient, higher tubular exposure? That's exactly right. So myoglobin is 17 kilodaltons. So it's significantly smaller than both hemoglobin and albumin. And this translates into a far higher sieving coefficient, in this case, 0.72. So again, you can interpret that as meaning that about 75% of the myoglobin that's delivered to the glomerulus is filtered. And 75% versus 3%, that difference, I would argue, is enormous. And you know, I can't help but notice that myoglobin is exactly one quarter the size of, of hemoglobin, right? I mean, that can't be a coincidence. No. And, and Hannah, you mentioned earlier that hemoglobin is a tetramer, meaning it's got these four globin, uh, globin proteins. And I think many of us probably remember that myoglobin is a monomer, and so it contains just one of these globin proteins. And so it makes perfect sense that it would be a quarter the size of hemoglobin. And it's this difference that really has huge implications for the sieving coefficient, and I think ultimately has huge implications for why rhabdo and that free myoglobin is much more able to make its way through the glomerulus, access the tubules, and cause pigment nephropathy. Okay, so going back a minute, we, we said that hemolysis can cause AKI, though it is uncommon. But we also just learned that a small fraction of hemoglobin is filtered. So is it just like too small? How do we sort of like reconcile these two things? Yeah, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of arguing two things at the same time. One, hemolysis can cause AKI, but we spent all this time showing why it can't. So it's just as you said, Hannah, we kind of have to reconcile that. So I think the first thing to remember is that we, you do need massive hemolysis typically to cause AKI. And as I mentioned earlier, ABO mismatch is sort of the classic example of this. I think in those settings, even with a low sieving coefficient of 0.03, you know, if you have a high enough level of free hemoglobin in the blood, enough can probably make its way across the glomerulus to the tubules and cause injury. But there's actually more to it um, because th this was totally new to me uh, until I read about this topic. It actually turns out that hemoglobin exists not just as tetramers, but also as dimers. And these exist in an equilibrium with the tetramers, with most of the hemoglobin existing as the tetramers, as you, as you might imagine. But if you look at studies of 
what actually gets across the glomerulus? Unsurprisingly, it's the it's the dimers that are much more likely to do this. I mean, they're half the size. And so I think many assume that it's the dimers that are filtered in the setting of hemolysis. And it's the dimers that are what are causing the pigment nephropathy. There's undoubtedly some tetramers that are doing it as well because their sieving coefficient isn't zero. And so it's probably a combination. But the fact that there is, you know, some proportion of dimers is is got to be a contributor to this as well. And going back to the ABO mismatch thing too, like, I mean, yes, that's a massive release of hemoglobin into the blood, but like those patients have lots of other things going wrong too, right? In terms of SERS response, <laughs> yes. DIC, like it's sort of, it's not a good situation. And, and that's a great point because there's a lot of other reasons why rhabdo is a a greater risk factor for AKI. It's not just the pigment nephropathy you know, patients with rhabdo are often quite volume depleted, and they may have other conditions that, say, predispose them to the rhabdo that might be things that are risk factors for AKI. So you know, it's not just this difference in the size of the two molecules and their propensity to cause pigment nephropathy. Rhabdo itself, I think, just has a lot of other things that often come alongside it. Now, Hannah, actually, I want to ask you a question because I, th- I think there was something um, interesting that you recently learned about haptoglobin that might actually throw a bit of a wrench into something I said earlier. So I'd love to to hear what you found. I think it augments what oh, you said earlier. So um, I cannot I cannot be the only member of our audience who occasionally Google's uh, questions that arise like as I'm hearing you explain something on the episode. Um, so as you were talking, I was thinking, well. It's like not that uncommon in the population to have congenital and haptoglobinemia. It's like somewhere around between like 1% and 5% of the population. We don't that commonly see AKI with hemolysis even in that group of people. And so I was looking up, there's another molecule called hemopexin, which is like an acute phase reactant that also binds hemoglobin in the liver. Uh, but in a similar way to haptoglobin. And what they found is that experimentally, like Tony, really to prove your point, having deficiency of that molecule from chronic hemolysis, specifically in this case from sickle cell disease, is associated with greater incidences of AKI during hemolytic events. Um, So it really kind of like proves this point that Avi mentioned too, that like you can eventually exhaust that mechanism, but it's probably just like deeper than we thought it was. The other thing that I thought was just like so cool is that really going back to the very beginning of the episode, paroxysmal hemoglobinuria, nocturnal hemoglobinuria is the only time when you get an AKI. So like- Yeah. And I'll just say one other fascinating thing about that condition is the hemoglobinuria is often so severe that, that it's a cause of iron deficiency. So this is one of those scenarios where you can become iron deficient because you are peeing out the iron. You're not stooling it out. And I think it's just fascinating. So I guess what we're saying is that hemoglobin is one of the most interesting molecules in the body. You would say that. A close second to surfactant. (laughs) So surfactant is cool. Surfactant, no no disrespect to free fatty acids, nor the Krebs cycle. (laughs) Well, I think we're allowed to disrespect the Krebs cycle just a touch. (laughs) Tony, did you want to share any take-home points for us about everyone's favorite molecule? I would love to do that. Uh, So even though both myoglobin and hemoglobin contain heme, uh, and that's, again, the toxic molecule in pigment nephropathy, rhabdo is far more likely to cause acute kidney injury than is hemolysis. And so one reason for that is that haptoglobin binds hemoglobin, and that prevents filtration by the glomerulus. 
But another reason is that myoglobin is a monomer, and so it's smaller than hemoglobin and easily filtered. And hemoglobin, being a tetramer, is just not nearly as easily filtered and doesn't access the renal tubules to cause uh, tubular injury. Totally new to me until I read about this, some hemoglobin actually exists as a dimer. And that's probably these dimers that are a large component uh, of the acute kidney injury because it's those slightly smaller versions that are filtered, access the renal tubule, and cause pigment nephropathy. Incredible. Thanks again, Tony. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.